0: Thank <laughs> you. In the great battle to take over the world, the United States is the number one target. It doesn't uh, matter really what we call the members of the conspiracy. They represent the same type of mentality, almost uniformly. They are atheistic, they are amoral, they are ruthless, and they are power-hungry. Now, in the coming struggle, we need to keep our own role in perspective. Not only must we stay in the fight and avoid getting discouraged, but we must remember that there is an intelligence far superior to our own that has a much greater vested interest in this fight than we have. He's been at it longer. He was the one that inspired the Founding Fathers in the first place. He is the one that created this, the first free people in modern times and it took a miracle to bring it forth. It's taken several miracles to preserve it, and it's probably going to take another miracle to save it. But when we do feel alone and overwhelmed and feel that the problem is too big for us, it's important for us to remember that in the final analysis, the ultimate destiny and outcome of this struggle is in the hands of someone more powerful, more thrillingly capable, with more resources, than all of us combined. And so we go forward in faith and confidence, hoping that we will do our bit so as to be worthy of that miracle and endure our valley forges, and like Washington and his men, be available when the miraculous opportunity for victory finally arrives. That's our task all of you have learned a most fundamental principle, and that is that knowledge is the only defense against deception. The only defense. And people who will not do their homework will be deceived. For example, if I said two times two equals seven, there isn't one in this room that would believe me. You learned in the fourth grade that that's a lie. Two times two is not seven. But if I told you that 49 times 49 is 5,481, you might not be so sure, unless you learned your 49 times tables, which I didn't. But some of you would figure it out, and you'd find that that answer was also false, and misses the true answer by almost 100%. But it demonstrates the principle. Unless you figure it out, or do your homework, you really won't know for sure. And sometimes false answers are given, copied down, and quoted as the gospel truth when they need to be proven and researched. Now one of the things that I didn't learn about as I was coming up through school was communism. In fact, my generation learned virtually nothing about communism. Yet when I went into the FBI, they said I had to know a lot about it, so I began my homework and I have had to keep up with it ever since. One of the things that amazed me in those studies was the fact that the communists spend so much time and energy attacking religion and the Bible. They lie about them. They misrepresent them. It's almost as though they were scared to death of religion and the Bible. And I decided that if I ever got out into the field and ran across a real sophisticated, intellectual, well-informed communist personality, I would ask them what their real attitude was toward religion and the Bible. That opportunity eventually came, and it was a woman, professor of a university, a former leader of the Communist Party, member of the National Committee, LLB degree and a PhD degree. And so I asked her if way down deep in their hearts, did not the communists really have some kind of an incipient or profound fear of religion and the Bible. And of course she said, no, we aren't afraid of the Bible and religion. We hold them in absolute contempt. They're absolutely false. And I said, then why don't you ignore them? Why do you spend so much time fighting them? Why do you have to lie about them and misrepresent them? Because people usually lie about the things they fear. She became very serious all of a sudden, and she said, well, if you're not going to be put off, I'll give you a real explanation. Religion and the Bible constitute the main ideological support of the people who oppose us. And it has been our experience that those who have religious convictions and do believe in the Bible are almost impossible for us to reach with our communist message of truth. As a matter of fact, she said, while we wouldn't say that we fear them, we greatly respect their vicious capacity to brainwash the people and keep communism from performing its great service. We do count them as obstacles. And I said, well then, that is why you spend so much time trying to defeat them and discredit them in the minds of the people. And she answered, in the coming struggle, ideas will be more important than atomic bombs. And I thought to myself, I wish every freedom-loving American could hear her say that, because many of our people don't realize where the source of our strength really lies. I was at a conference in San Francisco shortly after that, and I mentioned to them that a top communist official had told me that the communists fear religion and the Bible, and in the coming struggle figure that the ideas that come from religion and the Bible are more to be concerned about as far as they are concerned than atomic bombs. And I said to this audience, now take the Bible for example. Let's, let's take the Old Testament. Let's think of one message that comes out of the Old Testament that would scare a communist. And nobody answered for a while until finally an elderly gentleman held up his hand and he says, well, Mr. Skousen, I don't think I know, but I say, if they're scared of it, I'm for it. I I thought to myself, now, that's really the crux of our problem. The communist enemy has recognized the source of our strength more than we have. And our people say, well, if they're for it, it must be good and on our side, which it is. But meanwhile, uh, what are some of those ideas? Tonight I've been asked to cover ten of them. And I'm going to try and treat them very basically and in a way that will help us appreciate why the communist hierarchy has spent so much time and effort and energy trying to discredit these ideas. These particular ten ideas that I will treat are known to us all as the Ten Commandments. Actually, they are not numbered in the Bible. And there are two numbering systems that have been arbitrarily assigned to them. So if you hear me using a numbering system with which you yourself are not familiar, don't worry about it. They are the same principles. The first commandment says, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It is more perfectly stated in the New Testament where it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. This is the first and great commandment. In its larger sense, it is as though God were saying, My children, there are many things that you do not know. But one thing you know, you exist. And you find yourself on a beautiful planet. As I told my prophet Isaiah, this planet was specifically prepared for you. It is not the product of accumulated accident, but the product of careful, high-precision engineering. You are on this planet to be taught and tested, and as you pursue the exciting experiences of this life, remember me. I am. I am your Father, in whose image you are made. You are my sons and daughters, I have revealed to my servants over and over again, my plan for happy living, and happiness can be obtained no other way. Let nothing come between us. I have greater things in store for you, but I cannot force them upon you. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Remember me, I am your Lord and God. In its larger sense, That's what he's talking about in the first commandment. Remember me. I am. And not far away from you. And I am your father. Well, it's very difficult for men to remember God and to worship him without seeing him. And so there's a tendency for us to try and capture the concept of God or God-like beauty in something that we make with our own hands. But it has been the experience of our Heavenly Father that when we do this, we end up worshiping the symbol instead of God. And so he gave us the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto me any graven images. Now at this point, the communist interrupts us and said, all right, so you believe in God. Well, let me tell you something, I am willing to believe in God also, Um, providing one thing. Show him to me. Have you seen God? Has your brother? Has your sister? You know anybody who's seen God lately? You believe in Santa Claus too? And then he laughs. But this is not humorous to God. God knew that some of his children would ask just such a question so he gave them an answer. In fact, he's given it several times, but my favorite answer to that challenge is in the 19th chapter of Exodus. This was an occasion when over a million people asked to see God under very challenging circumstances. They were the children of Israel, recently brought up out of slavery by Moses, their prophet. Their leader had seen God. They wanted to see God. And so right while Moses was on Mount Sinai, And talking to the Lord, the Lord suddenly says, Get thee down, Moses, and hold them back, lest they break through to gaze and perish. And this gives us our answer. You see, God has no problem appearing unto men. It is men who have the problem of being able to endure it. And if they are not spiritually prepared and conditioned, it destroys them. And so he told Moses to hold them back. He did say, however, that he would let the children of Israel hear his voice. Over a million of them. We know there were that many because the Bible tells us the troops alone of Israel were 600,000. And, of course, they with their wives and their parents would constitute a very large host. So these people who were given this promise were a large number of people. And so Moses went down. He had about three days to prepare them. He had them wash themselves and their clothes and try to cleanse their minds as well as their bodies preparatory to this wonderful spiritual experience. And the Lord, um, knowing that they had suffered as they had under several generations of slavery, presented himself to them even though they would only hear his voice in a way that they would know they were dealing with the great master intelligence of the universe. And when his glory came upon Mount Sinai, the scripture says it was altogether like the smoke of a furnace, and it quaked. And Moses brought the people as near as they dared come, and then they heard the voice speak, and it began, I am the Lord thy God, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And this was the beginning of the recitation of the Ten Commandments. If you ask the average person where Moses was when he first heard the Ten Commandments, most of them will say on Mount Sinai where God wrote those commandments on the stone tablets with his own finger. The scripture says the first time either Moses or the children of Israel heard it was when they stood together as a body in a congregation, and heard the voice of God individually, scientifically, as he announced what these commandments were. And when all ten of them had been recited, Moses, carefully recording them as they were given to him, turned around and found himself all alone. The entire congregation had fled, it says, afar off, and he ran after them, for God was not finished. He begged them to come back, and they refused and said, in effect, uh, it's all right, you go back. (laughs) That's too scary. You go back, you get it, whatever you say, we'll accept it. And so he went back up and received the rest of the law, and it's contained in the 20th chapter of Exodus, 21st, 22nd, and 23rd chapters. Now, It was shortly after that that some of them were prepared sufficiently to come into the presence of God. And if you read in the 24th chapter of Exodus, uh, you read that exciting event where the Lord said that Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seven certain elders of Israel could come up. And the scripture says, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone and as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. So men can see God. They have seen him. Hundreds have seen him. Nevertheless, it is a most sacred and special privilege. But of course, the implications of all of this are terrifying to a communist. His only escape has been to deny them. If they are true as we know they are, then the communist is confronted with some devastating possibilities. It means that the whole basic fabric of dialectical materialism is not the true explanation of how existing things came into being. It means that there are eternal spiritual realities above and beyond what we can detect with our material senses here on earth. It means that planets, animals, and man are not the product of accumulated accident arising out of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis as visualized by Marx. What is worse? It means that there is a supreme intelligence intervening in the affairs of man. That Feuerbach was wrong when he said that the only god of man is man himself. It means that we are being watched, that our acts and of our lives are being recorded, and that someday we will have an accounting to make before our heavenly Father, just as John the Beloved sought in vision. To a communist, this is a nightmare. It has to be a lie. It must not be believed, and he must not tolerate anyone who believes it. These ideas completely negate the whole concept of materialistic determination. They would make a person virtually worthless as a communist. They would prevent a person from executing the supreme commands of his communist superiors. They would not permit him to lie on command, steal on command, or kill on command. No wonder the professor told me, That in the coming struggles, ideas can indeed be more important than atomic bombs. If the vast majority of mankind began discovering for themselves the absolute reality of God and submitted themselves to his commandments, communism would be dead. And the communists know it. That is why their literature is saturated with statements like these. Quote, a young man or woman cannot be a communist youth unless he or she is free of religious convictions. We must combat religion. This is the ABC of materialism and consequently Marxism. We hate Christianity and Christians. Even the best of them must be considered our worst enemies. Christian love is an obstacle to the revolution. Down with love of one's neighbor. What we want is hate. Only then can we conquer the universe. So don't let anyone ever tell you that the communists don't fear the Bible and religion. As you can see, these things practically send them into an apoplexy. Now the third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now when I was a little fellow, I used to think that means don't swear, don't cuss, don't profane but it means a lot more than that. This is the commandment the American Founding Fathers used as the keystone to our Judaic Christian society. If you want to see it in operation, go into any court in the land, and there you'll find the judge, the jury, and the witnesses all functioning under the sanctity of a sacred oath. For example, the witnesses say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And the voice of God echoes in the background, thou shalt not take this oath in vain. The founding fathers knew that if a witness took the sacred oath and then lied or alibied to avoid the consequences of truth, that witness would one day face his creator in a court of divine justice. Of course, in the beginning, taking a, an oath was no problem to a communist. You ask a communist, uh, Will you take an oath? Certainly. Raise your right hand? Yes, right hand, left hand, both hands. Uh, will you swear on the Bible? Sure, Bible, Ladies Home Journal, anything you have in have handy. But the Communists soon discovered that if they took that sacred oath which the Founding Fathers put into our judicial process and in our covenant society and then lied, it was a serious crime. We call it perjury. And this is what happened to Alger Hiss. He was sentenced to five years in a federal prison because he took the sacred oath and then lied by denying he had stolen government documents for the Soviet Union. The Founding Fathers said we were born with certain unalienable rights. Where did these come from? They said not from the government. They came from God when we were born. And we were also born, they felt, with certain unalienable responsibilities, under covenant to God to fulfill those responsibilities. Therefore, the third commandment was used by the Founding Fathers to undergird all of our American institutions. We were made what has come to be called a covenant society. Every important government official is put under oath to perform his office with integrity and with God's help. The president takes that oath, governors take it, mayors take it, policemen take it, and so do members of the armed forces. Why, even the chief justice of the Supreme Court takes it. And God says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now our task is to live up to that commandment. Believe me, if each American exerted himself to honor every sacred promise made in the name of deity, our courts would provide a hundred times more justice, our business life would be profoundly more honest, and the administration of government would be magnificently efficient. But even so, to the extent we do fulfill our sacred oaths, to that extent we add strength to our society, and the communists know it. Now let's take a look at the fourth commandment. This one is part of God's program for survival training. And it really works. This survival training is to be taken once a week. Therefore God said, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Now when the Lord says six days shalt thou labor, I don't think he's against the five-day working week. Uh, We can go ahead and earn our living on the five days, and then the sixth day, we play golf, we wash the car, we go swimming, we see a show. The main thing is to be sure that we save one day for the Lord's Sabbath. What should we do on that day? I'll tell you, if you don't know what to do, you can get mighty bored, and a person start looking around for something that's fun. And before long, we've turned that holy day into a holiday. So let me just mention two or three things that are suggested in Holy Writ that we can do on this very special day. For one thing, God did not intend that we would sit around twiddling our thumbs, so to speak, on this day. First of all, it's a day of recommitment. We take inventory of the past week, and none of us ever completely satisfy ourselves as to the way we have behaved. There's always much room for improvement. So we go to the church of our choice. We participate in devotions. We listen to a good sermon and renew our covenants with God. That's a good way to begin the Sabbath day. Then this is a particularly good day to study God's plan for happy living. Very few people read the Bible anymore. We buy more Bibles than ever before in history and read them less. We don't read them as much as our grandfathers who got up at 5 o'clock in the morning to milk cows and worked until dark. Do you know, in a sense, we probably would be judged by God as becoming a generation of illiterate Christians. Actually, you can read one half of the book of Matthew out loud, which is rather slowly, of course, as a healthy substitute for one hour of infantile TV entertainment. Two hours and you're through with the whole book of Matthew. Then you have something really worth remembering. To appreciate how terribly superficial... We've allowed ourselves to become. Think of the number of hours that you might have spent watching TV lately, and then ask yourself if any two hours of it was worth trading for a personal knowledge of what's in the book of Matthew. If you haven't done much Bible reading lately, try it next Sunday. You'll find it most enjoyable and very satisfying. There's a great, basic, eternal spirit that goes with the Scripture which we can get nowhere else. Because many people do not study the Bible, they have no real basis for their beliefs. Neither do their children. As a matter of fact, if there is a generation gap, which I'm sure there is in some homes, it may be because, first of all, we haven't adequately trained our children, and secondly, we are not willing to keep up with their problems in their time. A boy comes home and says, Dad just been to a philosophy class, you know, in sophomore in college, and he says, Dad, um, <clears throat> are we monoists or dualists? Dad look at him and say, Son, eat your soup. <laughs> <laughs> now, Friday, that boy's got to know what he's going to say in philosophy class about monoism or dualism. Where does he stand? His father can't help him. So, If that boy is not going to be deceived or if he's going to get a chance to maintain a dialogue with his parents, they've got to do something about it. Or a boy comes home from college and doesn't uh, want to say grace anymore, doesn't want to pray. He says, my professor of philosophy proved there isn't any God, that God is something we made up, that nobody has ever seen God. Of course, it's understandable why the professor had never seen God, but that's no proof that others haven't. Hundreds of others have seen God, and after our period of testing here on earth, John assures us we're all going to see him and be judged by him. Our children need to know this. They need to know the evidence. Faith and trust is built on evidence, and the Bible is one of the best places where that evidence has been recorded. Now, in addition to worship and study, the Sabbath is a good time to help the Lord do his work. It's as though he were saying to us, now over there in your neighborhood, I have some poor people, I have some very discouraged people, I have some elderly people, I have some sick people. Now I could send angels, but I don't. I send you. I'm sure many of you have had the experience of being ill and uh, suddenly having someone that you'd never expected at all, someone you greatly admired and appreciated, drop in on you to wish you well, and you just feel that psychosomatically something starts healing inside of you. I'm sure many of you have been where I have been when you were flat broke, and somebody, inspired or otherwise, out of the goodness of his heart, comes to you and offers to help or get a job for you, or help you out of this very discouraging dilemma. You know what it does to you. That's God's work. You go over to somebody that's very discouraged and take the time to just visit with them and let them talk it out. You'll see the change in their faces and their countenance, even if it doesn't change right away, it sows seed. That's all part of God's work. And he says, inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me. A society of neighbors who minister to one another makes a strong society. Sometimes we get too busy during the week to do some of these things. The Sabbath is a good time to help the Lord do his work. Now the communists are fully aware of the fact that the Sabbath day is a day of survival training for any Judaic Christian culture, and that's why They frequently eliminate Sabbath day worship, or the possibility of a common day of rest just the moment they take over a country. That ought to tell us how important Sabbath day worship really is. Now the fifth commandment is a direct contradiction. In fact, it wipes out one whole section of the Communist Manifesto. Marx said, abolish the family. He said, we must get the children away from parents. As for marriage, he says, we must uh, dissolve it as an institution. All of the women must belong to all of the men, and all of the men must belong to all of the women. And nobody must know particularly whose children are whose children. That was the spirit of Karl Marx. Well, on page 72 of the Naked Communist, I gave you the full text of what some of the provinces of the Soviet Union tried to invoke as they nationalized women at the commencement of their regime. A more vicious document you'll never read, but it wasn't long before they found out that social disease and social disintegration was the result of that diabolical, platonic, and Marxist doctrine. And so they had to abandon it. As a matter of fact, they have now... uh, introduced rather strict rules to try and hold the family together because they found it a source of strength contrary to everything that Marx had said. Therefore we get the eternal mandate from heaven which says honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Actually life follows a most interesting cycle We all start out very weak and dependent, absolutely helpless. We would die if we did not have strong arms and a warm heart to cuddle us, help us, feed us, so that we could survive. As time goes on, we grow up and grow strong. And the strong arms and the warm heart that cuddled us and comforted us in our childhood grow weak, and parents tend to climb the slope of life's mountain and then descend down on the shady side, going down toward the valley of shadow where there is a little gate through which each of us must pass. And God knew what a comfort it would be to a mother and a father if in those moments of dependency which are a little frightening. The unknown is always frightening, although God never intended it so. He therefore prescribed that children rally around their parents and say, Mom, Dad, it's going to be all right. We're here. And their strong hands and their warm hearts make a difference as one descends into the valley of shadow. So that was God's commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. Meaning that if we honor our parents, our children are more likely to honor us. And our Judaic Christian culture requires that we maintain family solidarity. It is the basic unit out of which freedom, respect for law, knowledge, understanding, and worship of God should grow. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Anyone who believes this would not make a good communist, he would make a good Black Panther, a weatherman, or other conspiratorial force who look upon murder and assassination as a major political tactic. God said the sanctity of human life must be safeguarded, and therefore he said to one of his greatest prophets immediately after the monumental flood, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. God invoked a responsibility on society to discover those who deliberately destroy life, bring them to justice, and under very strict rules determine whether or not they are guilty, and if they are, dispatch them back to the spirit world for God's judgment. This commandment was repeated to Moses, and it was never countermanded in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you'll read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that Jesus incorporated all of these basic Ten Commandments as the minimal requirement for Christian conduct, and then said, using that as a floor, I say unto you, go even higher in your conduct and in your ideology. Do you remember that? I hear some people saying, well, of course, all of this part of the Old Testament was wiped out. If they say that, they do not know either their Old Testament or their New Testament. As Paul said, the only part of the Old Testament that was wiped out after the coming of Christ were the dietary laws and the many superficial sacrifices that were really teaching devices or a schoolmaster to teach the people the rhythm of obedience until the Messiah came. The Ten Commandments were never revoked, and they're part of Christianity as much as they are the Judaic Code. In the United States today, we average about 11,000 murders per year. We have a lot of those who now say we should do away with capital punishment, because God said thou shalt not kill, and if men should not kill, the state should not kill. This is a complete perversion of the original concept, which was to keep life sacred. And if we do not use capital punishment as God commanded for those who are guilty of cutting short human life, then we make the life of the criminal more sacred than that of his victim. These are very fundamental things in the basic concepts that are contained in Holy Writ. Now the seventh commandment is also designed to strengthen the family. This commandment is that mothers and fathers and parents and children shall maintain their mutual confidence. And we do this by living up to the commitments that we've made to each other. And so the Lord said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. All forms of immorality which are abhorrent to God are described in detail in Leviticus chapters 19 and 20. The strength of the American home, and of all homes for that matter, depends upon mutual confidence, husband and wife, parents and children. It's a violation of this Seventh Commandment which has torn apart more homes than any other single factor. Freud came along and claimed that chastity would cause mental illness. Some of us wonder if unchastity is what caused his. (laughs) Under communism, immorality is made a prime virtue. Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther communist, a federal fugitive, as you know, who was run for president of the United States by the Peace and Freedom Party, boasted in his book, Soul on Ice, that criminal assaults on girls and women was his particular specialty. Under communism, women are degraded. Just after the Revolution, when so much violence was taking place, one Soviet official declared, There is no such thing as a woman being violated by a man. He who says that a violation of a woman is wrong denies the October communist revolution. To defend a violated woman is to reveal oneself to be bourgeoisie and a partisan of private property. That's how degenerate and perverted the minds of these materialistic people became. But happy homes are built on moral fidelity high standards of morality should be taught to our youth early in their life. Now this is a day in which uh, there is almost universal propaganda in favor of premarital promiscuity, and chastity is looked upon as something that is not only old, but psychologically and physiologically unsound. I thank God that I was raised by old-fashioned parents that had a different point of view. Their point of view came right out of the scripture. I remember my father discussing not on one occasion but many occasions the absolute necessity of maintaining moral integrity. And he had an interesting, positive, affirmative way of presenting it. He didn't try to scare me by saying what would happen to me if the moral code were violated. He mentioned how serious it was in the sight of God, that it was next to murder in his sight. But he had a positive uh, emphasis for it too. He said, you know, when you're married and you go to the marriage altar, there isn't any greater gift that you can bring to your sweetheart. When you kneel at the altar and even if you don't say it out loud, you can say it in your heart. Before I ever met you, before I knew you would be the one that would go down life's pathway with me, I honored you by keeping myself just for you it's out of this kind of commitment that happy homes of trust are made I had eight brothers and sisters or rather there were eight of us all together they all had that same training and so far as I know they all made it and were able to go to the marriage altar with that special wedding gift for their sweetheart. Now the Eighth Commandment was designed by God to protect property rights. This, of course, does a great disservice, the communist would think, to his cause and his ideology because God said, thou shalt not steal, which is a basic communist institution. The communist commandment is, thou shalt not get caught stealing Now, there are many kinds of stealing. Burglary, which is stealing by stealth, breaking and entering. Robbery, which is putting a person in fear and taking the things of value from his person or from his immediate presence. Fraud, which is lying and cheating to a person to get something we shouldn't get. Embezzlement, taking something that we've been trusted with legally but then misappropriating it. And then outright theft. These crimes constitute the vast majority of the enumerated crimes in the United States day by day. But the worst kind of theft of all is the kind of theft that was encouraged by Marx in the Communist Manifesto, in which he said that governments should use their statutory power to tax the people and steal from them the resources that could be used for unauthorized or unconstitutional purposes. He advocated this in the Communist Manifesto, and all of you know enough about what's happening in our country today to know that unconstitutional and unauthorized distribution and dispersion of funds taken from our people is one of the most vicious, uh, prevalent crimes that is being imposed and invoked upon our people today. Marx said that the crime of stealing was committed when anyone uh, sold something for profit. You see, this was kind of a new angle. He ignored all of this stealing that God talked about, and he said, now, actually, when you go out and, and sell something for profit, that's really stealing because the man who made the product should get everything out of it. Well obviously this ignored the fact that you can go out as a worker as I have done and you can make all kinds of shoes or manufacture all kinds of things and they just stack and pile up into a warehouse and unless you get an entrepreneur who'll come along who's got the ingenuity and is willing to stay up nights and get ulcers figuring how to distribute it and sell it at a worthwhile price, the stuff just stays there and collects dust and of course this will only be done if the profit is present. Well why does the profit have to be present? For a very simple reason. I have a definition of profit that I'll just share with you for whatever value it might have. Profit is the price you pay for something you want you wouldn't otherwise get. May I give you an example? In Salt Lake City in July, because that used to be a desert country. You wouldn't know it now with all the lovely trees and the water running down the curbs, but it used to be a desert. And in July, when it hits 90 degrees, you know that you're in a desert pocket of the mountains. And there isn't anything that we would rather have in Salt Lake City in July than a slice of ice cold watermelon. But our watermelon don't become ripe until the last of August or the first of September, and that's already cool weather. So the need for the watermelon is in July in 90-degree heat. Well down in Yuma, Arizona by that time the watermelon have been on for three months and they've gone down to about a half cent a pound or there's so many of them rotting out there on the field you just can't get rid of them. And all of a sudden a farmer's wife hears that up in Salt Lake City if those people up there could get watermelon they'd pay as much as 10 cents a pound. And she goes out on the porch and she says, Henry, yeah, I've heard that up in Salt Lake City they'll pay 10 cents a pound for watermelon. Well, he says, that's too bad. He said, they're all down here. She says, you go down there to Hertz and hire yourself a truck, and you come up here, and you put those watermelon in that truck, and you drive all night so they won't spoil, and you get up there and sell for 10 cents a pound because I need a fur coat. And Johnny wants to go to college. And Jane wants to go to college, and we've got that doctor bill to pay, and we'll be so much better off if you go up there to Utah and get that 10 cents a pound. Well, you know what happens. All good farmers obey their wives, and he gets in there. He knows she doesn't need a fur coat, but she wants one. That's all that counts. And so <clears throat> he gets those watermelon in that truck, and he goes up there and drives all night and gets up there, and we're so grateful for those watermelon. We're happy to pay $0.10 a pound, and we put them in the refrigerator, and we just drool in that 90-degree heat as we eat ice-cold watermelon. Well, the next time he comes up, we don't pay him $0.10 because somebody over in San Joaquin Valley heard what a good thing was going on up in Salt Lake City. So this time he only gets $0.07. Well, that's only 200% profit. That's not quite so good, but uh, anyway, it's worthwhile. So he keeps coming back until finally there's no profit in it. And by that time, our watermelon have come ripe, you see, so it works out just fine. Profit is the price you pay for something you want you wouldn't otherwise get. And that's a very important part of our system. As a matter of fact, it was a commandment of God that when you get a stewardship, you must make it profitable. You remember that? You must multiply the talent, else it will be taken away from you. God, who understood human nature a lot better than Karl Marx or Freud or some of these people, gave us the instructions and the concepts that make for happy, profitable, prosperous, peaceful living, if we would just listen to them. And now I must hasten. The Ninth Commandment. The communists train their people to become artists in violating this Ninth Commandment. It is, thou shalt not bear false witness. In other words, thou shalt not lie. Stalin said, promises are like pie crusts made to be broken. In the final analysis, of course, honesty is a very individual thing. And I have found even among communists a basic sense of honesty that permitted us to convert quite a number of them from the communist brainwashing they had received to our side and some of them served as double agents and I'll tell you did yeoman service down through the years to help the cause of freedom which they knew they had inadvertently injured. It is an individual thing. You develop your reputation for integrity and honesty as an individual. And it's great to belong to institutions, to churches, to schools that have a reputation for integrity, but it's always built on the integrity of individuals. Honesty is always in people, not institutions. Now the 10th commandment is a a very special part of our culture. I like to call it the call to labor. The 10th commandment um, is one in which God is saying to us in effect, do you see that nice house? You like a nice house? you see that lovely, beautiful new car? Would you like a new car? you see that prosperous farm? Would you like to own a nice, prosperous spread like that? Fine. Then you go out and earn the money to get your own. Don't you sit down and try to figure out how to cheat him out of his. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods or thy neighbor's wife or his servants or anything that is his. The Lord never said that it was evil to want to multiply and beautify and replenish the earth. In fact, that came to us as a commandment. But in every case, he said, we must do it on our own and not covet that of our neighbor and cheat him out of his. Of course, the communists specialize in coveting. They covet people, property, wealth, and power. They use blood and terror on a scale never equaled in history to satisfy their lust for other people's property. So far, they have coveted and acquired, by their ruthless methods, about one-third of the human race as far as its political control is concerned. But they're going to lose it. The Caesars, the Napoleons, the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, the Tojos, the Khrushchevs always lose in the last. Written on the stone tablet by the finger of God was the stern injunction, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Now I conclude. You can see that there is an ideological confrontation which exists between communism and the Ten Commandments. It demonstrates why a communist feels that it is a question of life and death to destroy religious convictions and wipe out faith in the Bible among mankind. It is true that in the terrible struggle that is looming up before us, it is very likely that ideas will indeed prove more potent than atomic bombs. It is therefore most important that we have the right ideas in our minds and the right ideas in our hearts. We hasten to add, however, that good ideas, like the Ten Commandments, have significance only as they reflect themselves in the lives of our people. At the moment, there is considerable disparity, in fact a growing disparity, between the ideals of our Judaic Christian culture given to us by God and the fruits it is producing in our culture. I am therefore reminded of the words of Francis Bacon, who in his days saw such a wide disparity between the beauty of Christianity and the lack of beauty in the lives of those who claim to be Christians. Therefore, I close with his words when he said, It isn't what you eat. It's what you digest that makes you strong. It isn't what you earn. It's what you save that makes you rich. And it isn't what you preach, it's what you practice that makes you a Christian.